You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. We are now going to jump into Nehemiah 3, the entire chapter. I encourage you to follow along and guess what I'm trying to read. Rebuilding the wall, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. The next, and next to him, the men of Jericho, of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hashina built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Miramoth, the son of Ariah, son of Hakas, repaired. And next to them, Melishim, the son of Berakah, the son of Meshibah, <laughs> repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Benah, repaired. And next to them, Tekoites, repaired. And then their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joadiah, the son of Pesha, in Meshlam, the son of Besoda, re- repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors and its bolts and bars. And next to them repaired Malatai, the Jibbonite, and Jadon, the Maronite, the men of Gibeon, and Mispah, the, set, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uzais, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to them, next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of her ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Haraf, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hatish, the son of Hashbinif repaired. Malachi, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pathan-Moab, repaired. Another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall, as far as the dung gate. Malijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hashirim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kohaz, ruler of the district of Mishpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Benai, next to him, Hashabai, 
ruler of half the district of Kilah, repaired for his district. After him, or after him, their brothers repaired. Bavia, the son of Hadad, ruler of half the district of Kilal. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mishva, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruf, the son of Zebedai, repaired another section of the buttress to the door of the house of Elishib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekos, repaired another section from the door of the house Elishib to the end of the house of Elishib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After him, or after them, Benjamin, Heshub, repaired opposite their house. After them, Azirah, the son of Meshiah, son of Aniah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benu, the son of Hadad, repaired another section from the house of Azirah to the buttress into the corner. Pala, the son of Yuza, repaired opposite the buttress in the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parush, and the temple servants living in Ophel, repaired to the, a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After them, the Tekotites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Opel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emir, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired after him, Hananiah, the son of Shalamah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zelpha, repaired after their section. After him, Meshalam, the son of Berikat, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melajai, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the mustard gate into the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the word of the Lord. Oh boy, I was about to ask y'all to give him a round of applause. So y'all were feeling the same thing that I, that I was feeling. Um, you know, but honestly, if you were raised in the 90s, uh, this really isn't that obscure of a passage for you. You know, anytime we wanted to watch a movie, we'd have to sit there for like 10 minutes with the credits at the beginning, not just the end. And so that's basically, you know, what we had. We had the rolling cred credits of the uh, construction project that we had. Um, so Bronson, thank you. We, we appreciate you, you bringing that through us. Um, you did mispronounce some, so come back on back up and let's try, <laughs> let's try again and let's get those names right. Um, now let's, let's pray together. God, you, you know that for us living in the year 2021, that, uh, you know, this is a strange passage. There's, there's no escaping that. Um, the, these are names of people that are hard for us to pronounce, and I'm sure many of our minds wandered as we tried to kind of follow along here. But God, help us not miss what you're wanting to do in this passage. The names and the gates and all of who built what is complicated. The point is very clear. The point is very clear. And it's one that I think we probably need to hear over and over again. 
And so would you help us and give us ears to hear as we consider your living and active word in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So you're probably asking yourself like, what are we going to get out of this? I mean, this is literally what we just read. I, I can't even like spiritualize it up for you. We just let, read a construction report that is 2,500 years old with names of people we will never meet uh, that are hard to pronounce, and they built a wall uh, we will never see. So what is it that we take from this very old, very obscure passage? Well, uh, as obscure as all of those things are, there's actually something else in this passage that is odd for us in the day and age that we live. And what's odd for us that we see in this passage is a group of people unified together. A group of people unified together. That's what we see in this passage. The, the, the point is what we have before us this morning is the people of God united together around the mission of God. The people of God united together around the mission of God. And what you may not realize as it pertains to the things that should stand out about us most as God's people is our unity, our brotherly and sisterly love. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Philippians, um, just after actually the passage we read a little bit ago this morning, he, he says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Here's what Paul is saying. The church in the midst of a dark and crooked world, we should shine as lights but what is it about us that Paul wants to shine so brightly in the midst of a crooked and perverse world? Back in verse 14, this is what Paul says should shine brightly about us. Do everything, do everything without grumbling and disputing. That is what is supposed to shine out from us, our common bond, our unity, our brotherly and sisterly love. And I can say, I've been walking for, with Jesus for almost 17 years now, okay? I don't know how long. Uh, some of you are just beginning this journey. Some of you have been walking with him for decades. I've been walking with Jesus for 17 years, and I cannot call to mind a time in which the people of God were more disjointed, when there was more infighting, bickering, and arguing that is present within the church today. So listen to me. As long and laborious and repetitive as Nehemiah chapter 3 was just to hear, and it was, maybe God has an intention in that. Maybe to get through our sometimes thick heads and hard hearts God wants us to hear as a church and next to him and next to him and next to them. Maybe God has something for us to learn in the repetitiveness of this picture of a church unified together. I think that he does. And so this morning, I'm not gonna look at every single detail and every name and every location of the gate that they repaired. I, I wanna look at this passage on a more zoomed out high level 
and, and take maybe three observations that I think will be helpful for us to consider as we seek to walk in unity next to one another in the church. What are some things that we can perhaps pull from this passage that will help us in that regard? Um, you know, as uh, if, if this unity is so important that we're supposed to have and it's so easy to be lost, what are, what are some things we can learn from this passage? That's, that's what I want to do with it this morning, okay? So uh, the first observation, this is, this is what I want us to see. And it's so simple, it can almost escape us, but don't let it. Here's the first observation. They stood side by side, not alone. The people of God stood next to one another. They were not alone. They were not lone rangers. They stood side by side. So our church is coming around on five years old right now. And we have been preaching a fundamental conviction that we hold since day one. We preach it here on Sundays. We preach it in membership class. We preach it across the table with coffee in hand. What is that fundamental conviction that we hold as a church? It's this. Your relationship with Jesus is deeply personal, but it's not private, okay? Your relationship with Jesus is a deeply personal thing. It's something, you know, that happens uh, in, in the privacy of our lives. You know, we, we can pray to God all by ourselves. That, that's part of it. It is deeply personal, but it's not private. It was never meant to be lived alone. And let me just give you a survey very briefly of how central the idea of togetherness, community is since the, even the beginning of creation. So you zoom back as we reflected on last week with the creation of the world. And as everything is really good, everything is utterly perfect, God looks at Adam, who had a personal relationship with God, mind you, at that moment, but he looks at Adam and there's no companion next to him. And so God says, it is not good for you to be alone. God has kept that theme up throughout the entire story that we read on the pages of our Bible. As we move on and the world falls into sin as a result of Adam and Eve, and God promises to redeem that in Genesis chapter 12 through this man, Abraham, even in promising to bring blessing and redemption to the world, he, he doesn't say he's just going to do it through Abraham. He says he's going to turn Abraham into this great nation, this multitude of people, this community who would be his people together. And we know throughout the story of Israel, they fail God time and time again. That's where we really find ourselves here is God putting the people back together even after they had sinned against him. But even after the people sin against God and reject his plan, his plan for a people together never changes. Nehemiah is kind of the last act of the Old Testament. It brings us to a few hundred years of silence and then Jesus steps on the scene. And what does Jesus do? Begin personal one-on-one -on -one relationships with people? He does begin personal relationships with people, but he immediately calls a group of men to follow him together. And then behind them was a, was a much larger group of disciples that, that were also following him. We, we move to the pages of Acts and we have all of these individual salvation stories that we read on those pages, but what we may not realize when we read those individual stories is that it was those individual salvation stories that turned into little churches where now these communities of people would walk through life together. 
So they did not stand alone. I just want to read one passage from Ephesians that I think captures one of many instances in which the Apostle Paul talks about the church, the people of God together. Ephesians chapter 4 says uh, in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together. So many of us recognize that uh, we are to grow up into Christ. We, we want to grow as disciples. We want to grow in our relationship with him. But as soon as he talks about us growing up into him, he immediately says, from whom the whole body is joined and held together. Whether it's the beginning pages of Genesis, whether it's the nation of Israel we read about in books like Exodus, or in examples like this in the book of Nehemiah, God has always intended for us to walk with other brothers and sisters as we relate to him. So boiling down the point simply, let me just say it to you this way. If you are maybe just beginning your, your walk with Jesus, or maybe you've been with him for a long time, you're, you're following the Lord, you would call yourself a Christian. And you look to your left, and you look to your right, and there's not some other brothers and sisters beside you. Something is off. Something is wrong. You've somehow stepped outside of what God's plan is for you to grow as a disciple. And so let me just speak to maybe a couple groups of people in the room. We've got everybody in this room from those who are just beginning to figure out Jesus and the church to those who've been walking with him for decades. Let me just speak to both of those. First of all, if you're just sort of beginning this thing or maybe coming back to church for the first time, I just want to encourage you. One of the best things you can do very early on as you begin following Jesus is getting around a couple other people who are doing the same thing. You know, we are creatures that grow by imitation. My uh, two-year-old was up with me this morning, at, you know, pretty early. Uh, and I just noticed as I was walking around my bedroom, everything I did and everything I said, she repeated. We, we, we grow by imitation, man. The same thing is true as, as we are followers of Jesus, especially as we're young in that process. Whether you're old in age or young in age, if you are beginning to, to walk with Jesus, you need some other people who are right there with you. Now, there are other people in this room, and you've been walking with him for quite a while, and that kind of question of to your left and to your right, there's not some other brothers and sisters, at least that you're walking closely with in terms of your faith. And there's different reasons for that, okay? I recognize it. Man, some people are dealing with past church hurt, where God may be inviting you to work through some forgiveness so that you're not walking with a limp with now every new sort of church community you find yourself in. Man, there are other people I, I talk to regularly. I'm, I'm sitting across the table. Hey, are you in community with some other people? Are you in a discipleship group? Are you, are you walking with others? And just the moment of honesty that I so appreciate comes out. And then we say, I just don't connect with other Christians. I, I just struggle with other believers. I just don't connect there. And I just want to give you, man, just this soft, gentle encouragement. I'm sorry, too bad. I'm sorry if, that, if that's the way you feel, but, but listen to this. Sometimes our walk with other believers actually isn't supposed to just be this perfect, beautiful thing. It's actually a struggle in which we grow. It's the struggle with difficult people where we learn to love like Jesus loves and he transforms our life in the midst of those difficult relationships. So even if it's a struggle you, with, for you to connect, that doesn't mean that you should stay disengaged. 
Man, there are others that would say, I would walk side by side. I would be more engaged. When I come, I just don't get anything out of it though. Can I tell you something about this story? So you have people rebuilding this wall that live right there in Jerusalem. They need a wall up uh, because if not, there's gonna be big problems in their life. There are other people who live a long way out who live in rural regions that, whose personal lives will be completely unaffected by what's happening in Jeru- Jerusalem. And yet they're there building, not getting anything out of it. Why? Because it's not always about us getting something out of it. It's about, like we said at the beginning, the people of God united together around the mission of God. And God is calling us as his people to do the same. So at New City, speaking really practically, What we hope happens are just some organic ways where you're connecting with people in this church, you're spending time together, that's great. We also try to just create some simple pathways uh, in which you can walk with other believers. The most basic one is Sunday morning. This is just a vital, regular experience where we're able to worship together and look to our left and our right and see other people who are doing the same. The next place we kind of practice that or, or avenue is through our membership process. Membership is simply a way for us moving from this just being kind of a crowd we gather with every week to us saying, as God would have us to some local church, these are my people. I am theirs. They are mine. I am committed to these people. We're going to walk this thing out together. Third, a way that we are hoping people walk side by side are through our regional communities that are getting ready to relaunch in August. So we had a great potluck together last week. Thank you all for those who participated in that and made that happen. What we are going to now see happening on a monthly basis, we've got different kind of regional communities. There's an Old Town one, one over in Sudley, Gainesville, Bristow. Uh, We've got one for young adults. Uh, We're going to launch one in Manassas Park. Um, uh, Wellington, we've got different groups where kind of geographically uh, new city people are present. We want those to be people where you're walking with, where you're engaging with. And then finally, discipleship groups are a place in which we can not just know each other casually, but, but kind of the deep places of our walk with God have those things connected with other believers. And so just a simple observation that's, that's relevant for us, especially as we're a very individualistic society. They were side by side they weren't alone. Consider what that might look like in your own journey with Jesus. What else can we observe from this passage? Number one, they stood side by side. They weren't alone. Number two, much more difficult, they were side by side and yet also unified. Those do not automatically happen together. You can put people side by side next to each other. That doesn't automatically mean that they will be walking in unity with one another. I know this because I have a minivan. And um, my minivan and four kids, a minivan and four kids, and usually a, a couple other find their, their way in there. And uh, God bless you if you have this. We don't have a minivan with, you know, personal iPads and coolers with Capri Sun in them where your journey to the destination is, is like a first class experience. We have a coach class minivan, okay? Uh, and, and so uh, I, I know that putting my, my, my four kids side by side with each other does not immediately produce brotherly, sisterly love or unity. It, it often produces me pulling my olive green 2011 Toyota Sienna off the side of the road to have a bit of a conversation if you catch my, my drift. That's, that's more often what, what uh, that side by side experience creates. So just putting people together physically is not enough to create the kind of unity that this passage displays. So 
what is it that you also need? Beyond, it's, yes, begin with being side by side, but there's something deeper that you need to, to engage in in order to actually have unity in the midst of that. What is it that, 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 that happens with that? There are two things happening in this passage that create not only togetherness, but unity. The first and most obvious is a common goal. A common goal. These people saw set before them a need something that would bring out their gifts and their resources and their energy. It was a need to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And that call to rebuild the, the wall of Jerusalem, that common goal drew people together. So to have unity with one another, we don't just kind of stand side by side and look at each other. We stand side by side and look at a common goal. And if that common goal is big enough, it allows us to look at our differences and disputes and problems and say, man, forget about all that. We've got work to do. Forget about any disputes. There's something bigger going on, and that's what's happening in this passage. The, the, the church came together, and I love how uh, Tony Evans, he's one of the best sermon illustrators, so I pull from him all the time. This is how he describes this common goal. If a football team is unified, it does not mean that everybody plays the same position. It does mean that everybody's going to the same goal line. If an orchestra is harmonious, it's not because they're playing the same instrument, it's because they're following the same director. If a choir is singing in great harmony, it's not because they're singing the same parts, it's because they're adding their parts to the same song. It's the goal that produces unity. Unity is not sameness, unity is having the same purpose. What unites the church together is when we get around this goal, the people in this story, this, this, this uh, recounting, were coming together with the goal of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Our goal is to come together to make disciples of Jesus. That is the common goal that causes us to look past our differences and, by the way, to use our different giftings. So in Romans 12, uh, 4 through 8, Paul says the, the following, For it is in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one in the body of Christ and individually members of one another. And then he goes into all of these different gifts that are present in the body of Christ. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who act, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, Paul says, not everybody has the same position. Not everybody has the same gift, but we do have the same goal. I've seen the church built up with more disciples of Jesus growing in their pursuit of him. And as we use our different gifts, we're united together. So what's needed to create unity? One, having a common goal. And then two, common genetics. Okay, follow with me on this one. Common genetics. The people in this passage, all of them actually have the same ethnicity. They are all Jews. They're all descended from Abraham, who we mentioned earlier. And so when you're building, uh, you know, a community together, when you're drawing people together, something that is obviously very helpful is to have, you know, a, a shared ethnicity, a shared cultural, uh, a, you know, a, a, a shared, um, you know, an ancestors, things like that. They, they pull people together. In fact, in this story, if you were not a Jew, you weren't even allowed to participate in this project. Paul says earlier, uh, or sorry, Nehemiah says earlier the, to some of the surrounding nations that they have no share in what they're doing. 
So having common genetics draws people together. How does that then relate to the church? Where we know we've got people from all kinds of gene pools, all kinds of nations, all kinds of backgrounds. How can the church be united together if we don't share the same genetics? Actually, if you're part of the church, you do in fact share the same core genetics. Because in Israel, you join that community by natural birth. In the church, you join this community by supernatural birth. Among the nation of Israel, you were a part of it by your previous generation. In the church, you're a part of this thing by what we call regeneration. To be a part of the nation of Israel and the rebuilding of the wall, you had to be born in. To be a part of the church, you have to be born again. How many of us, though, have lost sight of this new spiritual DNA that we carry? Each one of us, no matter what we look like on the outside, no matter our cultural background, we share this core DNA where we have been brought to life by the Spirit of God together that now unites us together regardless of whatever surface differences might exist. I want you to hear how Paul describes it in Galatians chapter 3. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither in Christ neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Is Paul saying when we are born again into Christ that we now no longer have any kind of external characteristics? No, of course. There's still male and female. There's still different ethnicities. Uh, you know, there's still different vocations that we, that we hold that are, that are represented in this room. What's happened, though, is all of those external characteristics have taken the back seat to a much more fundamental identity that we hold. We are all one in Christ. And what would happen if we grabbed a little more tightly to that shared identity in the midst of so many differences and, and divides that exist in our conversation today? The people in this story, they, they weren't just side by side. They were unified. And they were because they had a common goal and they had a common uh, genetics that they hold. We hold the same realities in the church, but our genetics are an even much more powerful one. They're a spiritual reality that we are born into when we put our faith in Jesus. So, observations for us to learn from this long, difficult passage. Number one, they were not alone. They stood side by side. Number two, uh, they were unified, even though they were side by side. This is the third one that I want us to observe. When, when you're studying the Bible, it's always helpful to observe, are there any words that are repeated regularly in this passage? Usually when something's repeated over and over again, that means that there's something important for us to take from it. And so we already saw in this passage that they were side by side and next to him and next to him and next to him. They, they said that over and over again. What's another word though? What's another word that is repeated in this passage over and over again? It's the verb. It's the thing that describes what they came to do. What is that word that's repeated over and over again? They repaired. They repaired. They repaired. This is not just something that's in Nehemiah chapter 3. This is tapping into something that God has been doing since the world broke down through our sin. 
Can I just call to our memory why it is that they're rebuilding this wall in the first place? The people of Israel are not rebuilding this wall because an unfortunate event happened. A hurricane came through, an earthquake happened, it broke it all down, and now we just need to come together and rebuild it. That's not why they're rebuilding this wall. They're rebuilding and repairing this wall because that wall in the entire city was destroyed as a result of their sin and God's judgment. Remember, the, the, the people of Israel, they entered into this covenant relationship with God. Every single thing that they had, from their very existence to their life, uh, that one, at one day and age flourished. Everything that they had was from God. And God called the people of Israel to worship him faithfully. But time after time after time, the people turn their back on their God. They worship idols. They commit wicked acts. And a good God, a good God is left with only one option when that kind of thing is happening over and over again. A good God doesn't stand back and ignore the the wickedness that he saw among his people. A good God steps in and judges. He puts it to an end. And that's what happened in this story. God destroys everything through the surrounding nations, not because the people of Israel were just, you know, unfortunate bystanders. They were wicked and they deserved it. And so God judged them and everything in their society was broken. That's what we see happening at different points throughout the Bible. Do you know what else we see happening at different points throughout the Bible? God coming to people who ruin everything with their sin and deciding to show compassion and mercy and putting it all back together. The rebuilding of the wall was just a small picture, though, of God repairing what was broken down and destroyed as a result of sin. We as a church have a much more powerful experience of God putting back together what sin has destroyed. And so I want to just say three statements, okay, that pertain to the rebuilding, the repairing that takes place in this church. Three statements. Here they are. Number one, we are a people who have been repaired by Jesus. Number two, we are a people still being repaired by Jesus. And then number three, maybe the most exciting part, we are called to be a people inviting others to be repaired by Jesus. Let me say those again real quick, and then we're going to look at a passage that I think illustrates them. We are a people who have been repaired by Jesus. We are a people being repaired by Jesus. And we are a people inviting others to be repaired by Jesus. Now turn over in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and get ready to hear the best news in the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's look at verses 17 through verse 20. Second Corinthians chapter 5. First statement, we are a people who have been repaired by Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
Through our sin, we destroy everything in our lives. Not so much so that we just need to add some duct tape or fix a couple things. Everything is messed up. Everything is broken. So Paul says, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Uh, God has repaired them fully. Uh, The old broken down parts, they're gone. Behold, something completely new. I love how the New Living Translation puts it. It says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become, listen to this, anyone who has become, who has, who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. That's what God does. He repairs us through Jesus. How does he do that? He does that by getting us to the core problem in our life. So, Uh, Maybe some of us have lots of broken things in our life, and if we think we could just fix that issue, fix our debt, uh, you know, get in better shape, become a better parent, uh, you know, fix our relationships with our parents, if we could fix these individual things, then life would come together. God says, no, 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 you've got a much deeper problem. All of those surface problems are connected to a deeper problem, and that is your relationship to God. If the surface problems in our life are going to be fixed, the core problem in our life has to be fixed. And that core problem is that our relationship with God is broken. It's destroyed. But Paul goes on in this passage to say, uh, describing first of all that we've become a new creation. In verse 18, he says, all this is through Christ. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. What does it mean to reconcile? Man, it just means to repair a relationship. They repaired some gates. What God does through Christ is he repairs our relationship with God. And when this comes together, all the other broken areas of our life begin to fall in place as well. I remember before I knew Christ, you just looked at my life. Everything was broken. (laughs) Nothing was working. Whether it was school, relationships, um, sexuality, whether it was... um, Uh, substance abuse, finance, like you name it, everything was broken. And if I could have fixed one area in my own strength and kind of turned away to go fix something else, immediately that one would have fallen apart again because I had to get to the core problem. What was the core problem? Well, people would come up to me years after my drug issues and be like, wow, incredible. How did you overcome your drug problem? What I would say is, man, I didn't have a drug problem. That was a symptom. I had a God problem. I had a God problem and a sin problem. I loved sin and I hated God, but the Lord Jesus made a new creation. He reconciled me to God and having that put back together puts everything else back together. So that is who we are, church. We are a people who have been reconciled to God. He has put back our relationship together by what he did on the cross. Now, let's just recognize the second point though briefly. We are a people who who have been repaired by Jesus We are also a people being repaired by Jesus. Here's sort of the weird tension that we live in. What Jesus did not do on the cross, he did not make salvation available, or he did not make our repair process uh, begin. What does Jesus say with his last breath? It is finished. It is done. It has been completed on the cross. Everything that we need to be repaired has already been done for us. We don't have to to work it out. So why then do we still struggle with sin and have broken areas in our life? Because all of us do. I'm not saying this morning that if you just begin a relationship with God, everything else falls into place perfectly. Man, things begin to come back together, but there are things that are still not working the right way. Why then do we still deal with that? Because we are people who are now in the process of learning to take what Jesus has already done and bring it to bear on our life today. 
We're not trying to earn anything. We are trying to take something that has already been achieved for us through Jesus and bring it to bear on our life today. And this is why we preach discipleship groups all the time because you're gonna get in a discipleship group and the goal of those groups is to get God's word open, consider what has already been done for you and to consider, okay, now how do I live out of that identity today? How do I, I'm this new creation. I'm not being repaired. I've, I've, I've become a new creation. The old has passed away. How do I now on Monday morning live out of that reality in the day-to-day of my life? That is what we are doing together as a church. We recognize Jesus did it all. He finished it. Now let's live out of that reality together. So we are a people who have been repaired. We are being repaired. And then finally, I'll close with this. We are a people inviting others inviting others to be repaired by the same Jesus. Let me just read the rest of this passage that Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, Christ reconciled us to himself and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against us and entrusting to us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We've experienced reconciliation with God immediately after what this passage talks about is now our role as ambassadors, inviting others to do the same. What does an ambassador do? They sort of live in between two groups, right? They almost have like dual citizenship. They are citizens of the country where they're at and they are representing that country in a foreign land. That's what we're doing. We live in a foreign land, we are far from home, but we are ambassadors representing the reality of who Jesus is and inviting other people to experience the same reconciliation that we have in our own lives. And we have seen God do this very work. This is why we planted this church. This is why we labor. It is one of the primary motivations that draws us in to be able to get a front row seat at the God who is repairing sinful, broken lives and watching him make new creations. That's why we exist. I just remember this, this one example from probably like four years ago. I remember one of our members telling us that, that she met a friend, a young woman, at one of the coffee shops here in town and struck up a relationship, uh, but man, this, this person had some deep things going on in their life. Uh, you know, some spiritual conversations came up, but it was almost immediately met with some pretty dark spiritual things that she was interested in and had no interest in talking about the Bible or ever showing up at church. Uh, She, at the time, was homeless. In fact, later she told me when I got to know her, she used to park her car in my neighborhood because there's a little area where you can kind of park and be on your own. She used to spend lots of nights right there. Substance abuse, brokenness, and all sorts of areas in her life. But finally, just through being befriended, she showed up on uh, a Sunday evening at the time over when we were at our old location. It was a weird experience, I'm sure, as maybe some of you have here on Sunday mornings now, a strange kind of different world, but she kept coming. Some other people in our church began to befriend her, welcome her in. I will never forget sitting at our old conference table and having the conversation with this young woman about what baptism means and then bringing her over some weeks later to our little horse trough that we bring out and watching her being baptized, which is just a picture of someone becoming a new creation 
The old passes away in the water. Behold, a new creation. I was just given, man, just a, a beaming smile on my face this week. You know, since then, she, she moved out of the area a little bit. She jumped in with another church. I got a wedding invitation this week to a wedding that's about to happen with this, this, this young woman who publicly said before the church, whole life was broken, whole life needed repair, now filling up her Instagram with things about Jesus and getting ready to begin a life together with someone else who's also following him. Man, what a joy we get to not only be people who have been repaired by Jesus, but to invite other people to experience the same thing. And so just a couple applications here as we get ready to close. We have been praying, fasting, seeking God together as a church this summer. So many of you have been able to come on, on Wednesday evening over to the community center. We're gonna meet for about two more weeks, okay? And can I just encourage us, man, this is where it all begins. Like this is where this, is where this new creation that God does begins as we seek him and ask for him to work in people's lives in this city. Can we just not let this last couple weeks of prayer fizzle out with like three or four people? Uh, as I talked about earlier, the usual suspects who would probably go to a prayer meeting anytime. Man, let's not let this thing fizzle out. Let's take a couple weeks here in August, fast and pray and long for more stories like that to happen in our church. Man, and let's just be considering together, who could we invite? Who could we draw in? Who could we befriend that needs the kind of repair we've experienced in our life? So a long passage you'll probably never read again this morning, okay? some names that are hard to pronounce, what do we get from it? Man, we get a picture of people who were not doing it alone. They recognized God calls us to live in community with one another. In that community, we replace infighting and personal preferences with unity that comes about by us fixing our eyes on this common goal, inviting people to be repaired by Jesus, as well as our shared new identity that we have as born-again new creations. And finally, we, we observe from this passage the people of God engaging in the mission that God has always been engaging in, a mission of repair. As we get ready to take communion then this morning, I want to read the last little section here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It shows us how Jesus did it. How did Jesus reconcile us to God? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. As you get ready to take communion, consider these words. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How did Jesus reconcile us to God? by living a perfect life. Did you know that Jesus never got in a senseless argument? He never lost his temper. He never sinned in anger. He never caused dissension or relational problems. He confronted people, but it was always done purely without sin. Contrast that with us. I, our family, man, in our little minivan, I can barely make it to church without having one of those issues, right? Like, like that's what we're known for is our pride, our anger, our sin that comes out of our anger. That's what we're known for. Jesus didn't know any of that. He didn't know any of it. But he, he went to the cross as someone who did all of it. He went to the cross in your place 
for your sin so that his perfection, his relational perfection among other perfections could be accredited to us. That, that's what we marvel at. That's what we marvel at when we take communion, that Jesus' perfect life was given to me and my wicked life was given to him. So as you come forward to take communion, would you just remember those realities? Christ's perfect life symbolized in that body given to you. His blood that covers your sin poured out for you. Remember those realities. And then this morning, as we always say, if you're here this morning and you've not yet, you've not yet experienced this reconciliation with God, I want to ask you to remain in your seats because we believe that communion is a meal of faith where we say we believe what this represents. If you don't believe it, then there's no point in even, even taking it. But to remain in your seats and just consider just this, this invitation that I read about just a second ago. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I stand here this morning as an ambassador, like I said a few minutes ago, with just imploring, asking, inviting you to not just keep trying to live life on your own, but to be reconciled to God. That is the core problem in all of our lives. And that core problem has been dealt with by Jesus. And you can be reconciled to him this morning by saying, Jesus, I believe it. I believe you lived a perfect life. You died for me and you rose up again from the grave so that you might give me a new life. If you want to talk any more about what that means, we'd be eager to do so. Let's then linger in our seats for a moment if you're going to take communion. Maybe there's some things, some relational things you kind of need to set before the Lord before you come and take these elements this morning. And then when you're ready, take those bread and cup back to your seat and just marvel that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you. Let's pray together. God, here we stand praying to you as new creations. If we wanted a, a visible illustration of what our lives looked like apart from you, that wall in Jerusalem would have been a good illustration. Broken down, destroyed, beyond repair, not just because of an accident, but because of our own sin. That's where we were. And just as like we see a small picture in that passage, we experience so powerfully today. You've taken what's broken, corrupted, and hopeless, and you've made it new. So Lord, this morning we marvel that you would give your life for us so that we could experience this kind of rebuilding, this kind of repair. We pray that we could worship you now as redeemed people. And I pray that some perhaps in this room might even now hear that invitation to be reconciled to God. Would you just lead even these next moments as we sing these songs and as we fix our eyes on you through the elements of this table? Would you facilitate and lead us now as we consider these things? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.